0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the Selling Across State Lines podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 17th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host, whose New Year's resolution is to enjoy 2018, is... <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this week we're pleased to greet Sam Halabi, professor. professor. Professor of Law at the University of Missouri Columbia and a scholar at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown. Professor Halabi's scholarship focuses on national and global health law with a specialization in the government structures of firms in health related sectors, the role of intellectual property assets in those firms, and corresponding regulatory approaches. He's a prolific scholar whose work can be found in both legal and medical publications. First time on the pod, Sam, a big welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here.
0: A little lightning. I thought Frank uh, to try and uh, lighten things up a little. Although lightning, uh, not to mention thunder, plagues and locusts, has been striking our world of health law and policy for the last two months, there hasn't been anything really specific to talk about. Although friend of the show, Alison Hoffman, has a lovely preemptive strike at Reg Blog titled The Unhealthy Return to Individual Responsibility in Health Policy. However, back in December, we had the bipartisan 21st Century Cures Act. But we won't really know much about the device. And drug regulatory rollbacks until we see some, quote, breakthrough devices, unquote, given quick approval or drugs approved on the basis of clinical experience, whatever that may be, uh, rather than uh, gold standard clinical trials. There are some healthcare data provisions. Um, there's all that overstated, overblown stuff about information blocking, uh, but we'll also see some changes to the HIPAA rules regarding PHI used for research purposes and some tweaks to uh, research access. Overall, however, I thought the act was hugely overblown. A self-important Congress at its worst. There are so many calls for dull-sounding future reports from hell bureaucrats, from health bureaucrats. There's a a worrying slip (laughs) that I even felt trumpy at times. And needless to say, all that research money is not guaranteed and the whole thing reeks of special interests and total ignorance of the Iron Triangle.
2: (laughs) Well, that is a fantastic uh, summary, Nick. I very appreciate it. And it's so funny you should mention the hell or health uh, bureaucrats uh, because I actually have had... Difficulty the past couple of weeks trying to get someone to attend a roundtable that I am doing on some issues in medical automation and robotics and someone told me oh you just need to call this office at HHS and I'm like I've I've called them like four times and emailed and you know but now I see exactly what they're busy with which is uh, this this uh, dealing with all these reports that are due so thank you
1: <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't I, I don't disagree with any of your characterizations Nick the, as a matter of fact the the portion of the of the legislature. Of history was following had to do with um, sort of incentives for repurposing or repositioning drugs, and those uh, were, were thankfully dropped in September. Um, as, as to the rest of it, I, I think you, you've got sort of the, the right read.
0: Second, uh, although the Cures Act makes changes to data flows, we'll not be seeing those anytime soon. But last week we did receive something a lot more focused: the final SAMSHA rule on the confidentiality of substance use disorder patient records. Or, for you traditionalists, an up. Update to 45 CFR Part 2. So the old rule generally prohibited disclosure of treatment of substance use disorder records without explicit each time kind of consent from the patient. It was obviously based on uh, worries about possible insurer or employer discrimination, coupled of course with the very negative incentives to treatment that would be suffered by a vulnerable population. The final rule is a somewhat successful attempt, I think, to update some 30-year-old protection to better reflect clinical integration and data interoperability, and the need to include diverse populations, such as uh, this uh, vulnerable group, in research studies. Uh, Samsha seems to be getting praise for some of these updates, but critics worry that the agency hasn't gone far enough in reducing the friction surrounding this patient subset's data, and perhaps the rule could have been fully integrated with HIPAA. Uh, that last is a criticism I also made of the proposed reform of the Common Rule.
2: Yes, I've supervised some papers on the uh, issues at Samsha and some of the difficulties that researchers are facing. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot of um, concern in terms of trying to. To get an integrated 360 degree view of a lot of really vulnerable populations and it's very unfortunate, you know, that there that could not have been a sort of a goal. Although I guess it probably would have had to have been asserted as a goal four or five, six years ago. But integrating the SAMHSA, the Common Rule, and the HIPAA rules with respect to uh, health data, and I can say a lot of the researchers, uh, big healthcare systems in the field, are feeling a lot of confusion over exactly where all the rules are heading and how they're going to be adapted to the learning healthcare system.
0: So finally, a nifty new resolution agreement between HHS OCR and that very large Illinois provider, Presence Health. Uh, with the latter settling claims by paying $475,000 and implementing the always popular corrective action plan. Um, this is uh, of note because it was the first of its kind settlement, uh, based as it is on untimely notification of a breach. Uh, allegedly, back in October 2013, Presence discovered that paper based operating room schedules, uh, which contained the PHI of 836 individuals, were missing from one of its surgery centers. The information consisted of the affected individual's names, dates of birth, medical record numbers, dates of procedure, types of procedures, surgeon names, types of anesthesia, and so on. Uh, OCR's investigation revealed that Presence Health failed to notify without unreasonable delay, and within 60 days of discovering the breach, each of the 836 individuals affected by the breach, uh, prominent media outlets, as is required for breaches affecting 500 or more individuals, and, of course, OCR. Uh, so uh, just a, it's just a shot across the bows uh, by uh, OCR saying that it's not just uh, that you have to uh, notify breaches, but uh, make it
2: timely. And Nick, do you have any sense of where OCR's priorities are going to be in the Trump administration, or do you think that it's going to be a lot of continuity? Well, of course, uh, we
0: know that Jocelyn Samuels um, uh, will be leaving. Uh, she was a political appointment. I believe that most of the other folks folks their uh, career. The real question is whether there is a turnaround to the Bush administration days when we really did not get much enforcement at all. It wasn't until uh, OCR uh, was entrusted with the enforcement and it wasn't until the staff at OCR was ramped up and 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 given additional powers, some of which came uh, under high tech, that we saw the beginnings of uh, these carefully sort of calibrated, I think, relatively strategic settlements, uh, investigations and settlements with providers. As to the other sorts of things that OCR does, I think we might see more of that. Um, We've certainly seen quite a few relatively helpful guidances, explanations, web postings from OCR, uh, trying to sort of color in some of the gaps in uh, HIPAA regs. It wouldn't surprise me if they were told to do more of that, but I do worry about uh, the investigation and uh, prosecution side, um, and I, I think that um, HIPAA enforcement going forward uh, may well be passed over to Charlie Orenstein and ProPublica rather than <laughs> remaining at HHS.
2: <laughs> so, you've heard it here first. Listen to Twill and our guests uh, for the future of health privacy soft regulation.
0: Well, let's turn to our guests and another big welcome, Sam. Um, I, I was reading your stuff and looking at what you've been doing, and I I think you both have a really interesting background and several scholarly foci. And I was wondering whether you could kind of introduce your work a little bit to, uh, to tell us what are some of the themes that hold your intellectual pursuits together. And, and with so many apologies, as this sounds like a ghastly job interview question frequently heard at a large Washington hotel, (laughs) but sort of where are you planning to take these various pieces? It's, it's fascinating work.
1: Thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah, you know if you just do a a kind of quick scan of my scholarship, I think they can appear disjointed. They are mainly unified by an interest in sort of the diversity and nature of markets, and and really that's where I started as a as a practicing attorney. I was a I was an M and uh, associate and just did a lot of very large, very transnational deals um, where I saw a lot of global consolidation, uh, not necessarily in, in health-related industries, but but not excluding those either. In fact, when I became a fellow at Georgetown, it was principally to study the way that consolidation of global tobacco firms had affected efforts at tobacco control regulation at both the international and national level. So that is, in fact, what unites almost everything that, that I've written. So even if you look at something that sounds like a corporation's article, like like veil piercings procedure. Uh, it starts with uh, global tobacco firm consolidation, and then international intellectual property shelters, um, which is what I think you made an allusion to at the, at the very beginning. Um, is really about consolidation in vaccine manufacturers, tobacco manufacturers, and uh, sort of um, kind of snacks and beverages firms. Now, the, as it happens, the the real implications of that consolidation that I am most concerned about. About, um, has to do with health outcomes and that's why i'm sort of part of uh, the community that that you two are part of and and sort of really value the contribution that this podcast makes
2: yes and i really see the theme of corporate consolidation and its influence on health in your recent piece uh, selling hospice which was looking at the Vitos chain or the Vitas organization and I really admired the way in which you um, looked at and tried to set up this distinction between culture leading to, say, increased hospice utilization... Versus, say, the profit demands of a very large corporation leading to that. And I have some questions that I want to put to you that, that are on the, that I also uh, wrote to Sam Worski at the Washington Post after he did an expose on a for profit uh, uh, hospice chain. But before I get to those, I just was wondering if you could let our listeners know sort of what the the puzzle or the problem was that you were trying to solve with the selling hospice article and how this idea of thinking deeply about the role of corporations in the corporate form in healthcare how that can help us understand the evolution of end-of-life care in the U.S.
1: It really started out with the the point of decision, um, and uh, not for particularly any good reason. Um, as I sort of note at the very end, sort of as a disclosure of the article, my spouse is uh, was a trial attorney with the Department of Justice, um, and she'd been working very long hours on some very serious. And of course, I only had sort of a, a, you know, sort of narrow idea of what it was. And then when they finally filed the complaint in May of 2013, I got to sort of read what all that work had been. And it was a, it was a uh, intervention brief on behalf of relators who had filed a lawsuit against VITAS, the nation's largest provider of hospice services. Um, And reading through the complaint, I really sort of just started thinking about that, the point at which a patient who has a terminal diagnosis makes the decision to forego curative care and just focus on palliative or spiritual care. Um, and as it turns out, nobody really knows, right? There's There's been very little systematic analysis or study of that point in patient decision-making. Um, it is incredibly important to sort of understanding why we think hospice should be Supported publicly. Um, and so once I found out that we didn't know very much, um, I started looking into what the practice was of this very large um, hospice provider. And as it turns out, that in the entire network of advisors, counselors, healthcare providers, institutions that we would rely upon to have, um, I guess what you would characterize um, maybe in a little bit different way than Zach Buck did a couple of weeks ago, a fiduciary duty to sort of help a patient make that incredibly important decision was almost entirely captured. Um, So sort of drivers of Meals on Wheels vehicles, nurses, uh, physicians, um, even clergy um, were sort of subject to the influence of of the VITAS network. And it wasn't sort of hidden or opaque. VITAS had made it very clear in securities filing. Um, that it, as a matter of its responsibility to shareholders, it needed to capture that network surrounding a patient making an, an incredibly important um, and difficult decision, um, and so that that was the starting point of the piece. Um, I, I hope that that adequately answers the question. As you can tell, I could probably go on sort of longer on the, the sort of the, the reflections about that that point in time and what led me to the to the study.
0: Let's take maybe sort of one step back, because I think one of the aspirations with regard to the coverage of hospice is that it will actually uh, reduce uh, expenditure uh, compared to other, perhaps more aggressive forms of end-of-life care. But there seems to be research, and there's a there's a very good piece by Gazalo and colleagues in the New England Journal in 2015. There's research suggesting that people, in fact, are staying in hospice for far more for far longer periods than was originally foreseen. And also the impact of for-profits offering hospice and allegedly capturing generous profitable per diems, um, possibly by selectively enrolling low-maintenance patients, for example, non-cancer patients. Is is that part of the puzzle that you're talking about here? And, And do you agree with that kind of spin or do you think it's just stereotyping for profits? Uh,
1: just briefly I, I, I suppose I should have put just a little bit of a finer point on Frank's question which I think was you know the, the hospice movement really started out as that when you think of an environmental movement um, or you think of a conservation movement um, the hospice movement started out as this idea that we need to make a, a cultural shift um, in our approach towards death and, and dying Right, and I think it was with Kubler-Ross, you know, probably played as a big role as, as any person getting that movement off the ground. And so the, that question of culture was, ha, have Americans really undergone a cultural shift in how they view the end of life? Or is this just a function of sort of commercialization of a, of a specific service? Now, back to your um, question. I think that the evidence is that um, it's not sort of caricaturing um, for-profit hospices, at all, and it isn't just that hospices, especially for-profit hospices, um, and you know, let me let me let me just speak of hospices broadly, because as I mentioned in the article, in a market where you have a for-profit entrant, non-profit providers tend to mimic the same kinds of behaviors. Um, it isn't just that you have greater enrollment of pa- patients with diagnoses um, that are vaguer. Right, so something like dementia. Um, historically, cancer was the was the um, the most common disease for which you saw hospice elected. It is that uh, you know it's not just that Medicare reimburses. You know, sky's the limit. There are also annual caps, so you will see the enrollment of certain kinds of patients earlier in the year, and then as a as a, the year ends, you see the enrollment of a different kind of patient. So that if you see an in-stage cancer patient um, even for-profit firms will enroll that patient at the right time to pick up as much money as possible so I think the evidence really very strongly suggests um, that that the industry um, has really affected um, patient decisions um, and it, and it, it looks like it has really uh, disrupted the narrative that started in the 60s and 70s with really caring about dignity and, and end-of-life
2: There's such a fascinating question to be asked about sort of roads not taken. In terms of what would the landscape look like if it were dominated, say by more nonprofit firms. And I think your work here is really of great interest in debates that I've seen between, I think, Jill Horowitz and I forget the her interlocutor, but over whether the nonprofit status matters. And, and you have very a very subtle account of it's not just nonprofit or for-profit status. There's also very important aspects of is it publicly traded, etc., and that I highly recommend to readers. But, I just wanted to be sure to give one uh, point of pushback um you know because i I try to give the provider perspective often on this podcast because uh, I think sometimes in the health law and policy space, the provider perspective is not as often you know thought about or heard from, and the idea here is and also even from some patient perspective. I think it's clearly terrible if hospices are trying to draw people in who might uh, be able to be benefited from further clinical care uh, with a, with the a intent of curing. If they're drawing them in early to um, uh, palliative care, that that seems really troubling. It also seems troubling if you have people that are you know relatively doing well and can you know function very well um, and are sort of draining the system of funds. But I'll also say on the flip side, as someone who was in the position of taking care of a severely ill and disabled person at the end of their life, there was not much uh, in the way of support from Medicare for things that the, you know, the person that I was giving care for had to deal with. Um, Medicare really... Uh, in terms of, say, giving a visiting nurse, they would do things like watch the person's weight, give insulin, etc. But, you know, they were not exactly assertive in terms of helping in scenarios where, you know, I felt quite exhausted. And I know several other scenarios where caregivers felt quite exhausted. So I guess one thing that I think, you know, in order to sort of round out the story, perhaps, is that we should be very cautious about the ways in which the profit motive can distort the system But I think we also should be really sensitive to the position of many caregivers who perhaps are looking to hospice because there's just no other way to turn. And I I think you characterize this in the article as sort of like a a version of long-term care, but sort of like cheating to get long-term care. And I, I don't know. I mean, I sort of feel like on some level, the system almost seems to be pushing people toward this because there's so little support outside of hospice for many people who are very chronically ill and for many of their caregivers.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't regard that as being pushed back at all. I think that that is exactly right. I think that, and, you know, we actually don't have any good primary evidence that I know about, um, about whether or not Hugh Westbrook, who's really kind of the the originator of, of modern hospice, at least so far as its federal entitlement goes, if he predicted that this country could not have really a, a candid discussion about the burdens imposed on the caregiving generation of, of an aging generation. Um, and so I think the most, the most sympathetic way to read the hospice entitlement as it currently functions um, is that it is essentially a second best alternative to having that candid conversation. But as sympathetic as you may be to that perspective, that doesn't make it less illegal. The um, and so, um, I think it is a, a difficult question. But I think that if you have a candid conversation about what it means to take care of, you know, sort of an elderly relative with dementia who, as you rightly point out, cannot be comprehensively cared for by Medicare, um, what should we put in place instead? And uh, you know, the the way that the system functions now in its second best state, I mean, it's it's just rife with, um, you know. It's rife with corruption and, and fraud and I and so I think that second best alternative really is inferior to to a policy that might result whether at the state or federal level about what we need to be doing with our with our resources to taking care of, a, of an aging generation
0: well let's use that as a as a transition to uh, your collective corporate knowledge piece because the uh, the sort of the back end of the selling hospice uh, piece is uh, a look at a whistle blower, a case that was brought against a, a hospice provider, particularly with regard to um, uh, the referral uh, policies that were going on. And I, I think that was settled uh, late last year, as I, as I remember. The collective corporate uh, piece really asks about sort of the the role of corporate knowledge and, I guess, sienta in criminal proceedings and, and specifically in false claims cases. And it was it was, it was interesting reading it because it was it was sort of to an extent a little sort of counterintuitive as I started it because we've been talking so much about the Yates memo, which is sort of the inverse, right? It's uh, using the the uh, uh, the business need of the corporation to settle to give up the culpable individual decision makers, uh, those who possess the best hive knowledge, if you like, and yet here we we have the opposite, which is what corporate knowledge uh, do you need in order to uh, bring a false claims, knowingly present a claim? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: My initial remark would be that even within, you know, the the division of, of commercial frauds at DOJ for your frontline trial attorneys or even for your senior trial attorneys, there's a tremendous amount of interpretive dialogue about about, first of all, what the, what the real objective of the Yates memo is, and second of all, how it should be applied in, in current and, and sort of soon to be filed cases. It's not clear to me that the actual objective of the memo um, is that you need more sort of flesh and blood individuals on the chopping block, um, as much as it is a way um, to to get better information about corporate culpability, even if it is uh, sort of articulated, as you rightly point out, in a kind of counterintuitive way. I mean, FDA, for example, has sort of worked in that way for a number of years. And I think that, in all honesty, that the reason I was compelled to write the collective um, corporate knowledge article was because there was rampant selective citation of the legislative record in both district court orders and appellate decisions that had examined "'and the issue. And so my aim was to say, here is the legislative history. I have looked at every page. I have sort of tried to think of it in both the provider and in the sort of prosecutorial roles or the whistleblower roles. And here is what the legislative history says about the issue. Now, in the course of undertaking that project, uh, I, I discovered that there was actually a lot that was relevant to ongoing debates in sociology and economics um, and, and psychology about what the, the communicative, what the hierarchical, what the structural features of complex business organizations do. Um, and so I decided to include that with the article. But but really, the goal of the piece was to clarify, mainly for judges who struggle with multiple congressional revisions of the law, to say, here is what the legislative history tells us.
2: I know the time is running short, and I didn't want us to slight some of your more internationally focused work, Sam. And I was just wondering if you could share with our audience um, your perspective on the Codex Elementarius Commission and the FDA's role? Because I think, you know, many of us in health law, you know, are not really aware of or as aware as we should be of some of these international actors. And I think your perspective is really valuable there.
1: I think in a lot of ways, the the reason that it is important for scholars of food safety law in the United States, including a lot of our colleagues in the, in the legal academy, although it's, you know, shared by schools and colleges of natural resources, agricultural studies, agronomy, etc., um, is that if you if you don't study the way in which federal regulators interact with the international organizations, it can very easily have a kind of black helicopter, um, frightening um, sort of, of image because, you know, its its workings are pretty arcane, they're diplomatic. And so there's a sort of a lot of sensitivity to keeping things sort of appropriately phrased, even if not secret. So the, the Codex Alimentarius Commission really is nothing more than a joint institution between the World Health Organization and the, the Food and Agricultural Organization, both of which are specialized UN agencies. Um, you can only be a member of, of Codex if you are a member state um, of those organizations, um, and there are some sort of limited conditions where you can have observer status. Um, as a functional matter, sort of the committees that that make Codex work can have non-governmental participation, and they do. And it's one of the reasons that I worry that people think that Codex is at its core sort of nefarious and and opaque. I, I don't think that that is really what's going on with the organization. It's, it's actually pretty transparent at the end of the day. The other reason I think it's important to understand Codex is because Codex adopts standards put forward by its members, so by governments, that affect really almost everything that we consume, from how natural mineral water water can be categorized um, to the way to appropriately handle shellfish. Um, and where you don't have a specific federal regulatory standard, a codex standard will often serve as a substitute, even if not by a regulator, than by a, a company that is trying to adopt a a best practice. So it's enormously influential. So, for example, one of the really robust sort of controversies in U.S. domestic law is how can something be characterized as natural, right? Um, it's sort of FDA for a very long time just wouldn't weigh in. And then it offered to sort of um, have a, an extended comment period. It's going to be a very long time before we have any authoritative guidance. There has been a codex standard on what is natural for a very long time. Um, and it's a standard that that a lot of industry participants adopt. Um, and, and so I, I would say that understanding how international organizations affect the regulatory landscape is incredibly important.
0: And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Halabi for spending time with us. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Nicholas Terry. And Frank, where are you hiding this week?
2: <laughs> Please come join me
0: at, at HealthPI on Twitter as well. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.